that is right, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Gluck, and I'm here in Lake Oswego, Oregon. I'm at the home of Grayson Raz, who welcomed me into his house with cookies, watermelon, chips, bean dip, guac, and a cool place to watch the TV. Grayson, how are you? Doing pretty good. I appreciate you having me and uh, hanging out with me watching the race. It's kind of boring. We don't really have a lot of people to watch races here in Oregon. No, that's cool. I, I you know, I walked up and you're, uh, you had your trailer outside and your late models in the garage and you're working on it with um, your dad and your brother. And then it seems like I made you ditch them and they had to work on it during the race while you uh, just watched the race with me. Yeah, I mean... I mean, my dad kind of takes breaks and watches there. Sometimes he likes working alone. Um, I'm still learning, so sometimes he gets a little annoyed teaching me everything. So uh, sometimes having a break from uh, his son is probably a good thing. So, Grayson, uh, just for people who don't know your credentials, you finished, I believe, top five in the points last two years in k West. And now you're running a late model from, from your garage when you can. And what else? what else do you have going on? We raced one K&N race this year down in Colorado, and we are in top five there. Uh, just kind of piecing together, just kind of a part-time driver right now. Going back to school, took a couple of years off to focus on racing and just, just trying to get my life in order and just learning as a young adult here. And uh, there's lots of fun run responsibilities around here. And But other than that, we just, just go and racing whenever we can. Like you said, I finished top five last couple of years in points, but uh, just part-time racer right now. Well, it was fun to watch the race with you because you were seeing a lot of things that I wasn't. So let's talk about the last restart first, because we both going into overtime, we said, okay, here's Martin Truex Jr. He has a race lead. He's starting alongside Eric Jones and Kyle Larson is going to be restarting fourth. Now on the inside, you had Matt Kenseth restarting third. And we were talking about how it would be a bad situation. Worst case for Matt Kenseth, really, if Eric Jones ends up winning that race, even though they're sort of teammates uh, with the Toyota Alliance and everything, Kenseth didn't want to push Jones there, I don't think, because that would be bad for him as far as getting in on, on points into the playoffs. So he seems to lay back there, and uh, he tries to wait for a push by Ch- from Chase Elliott, and that sort of opens the door for Larson, you said, in, in your analysis. What did, what did you see on that final restart? Yeah, Kenseth... Definitely did not want the 77 win in that race. Uh, he laid back, definitely. Uh, he wanted to go for the win and have Chase push him there. Not sure really what 78 had go wrong. He didn't look like he spun the tires too bad, but uh, just didn't look like he had any front grip there. He kind of said in his interview that he didn't get the tires warm enough. So that's kind of a bummer. I think the 78 was definitely the dominant race car today. Kind of interesting that a Toyota was being a little bit more dominant today based off of Brad's comments throughout the week. But I don't know. It's... It's hard because there's no such thing as really teammates in the last about 50 laps, no matter Alliance or, or anything like that. So what, what Kenseth did kind of made sense. I think uh, Jones was just a, a sitting duck at that point. Yeah, it's tough for Jones. I mean, I think both of us, we would have liked to see what would have happened if Jones had won. It would have messed up the playoff picture. It would have been um, another new winner, and it would have been pretty exciting. I think... I was sitting here thinking, wow, you know, Truex is just going to add another five playoff points, really six, because he got, he won a stage and, you know, just marching toward the, toward the championship here. And then I think even earlier in the race or for a lot of the race, we had been talking about, oh man, you know, Larson is just off today. He's just, gosh, out of nowhere. I mean, just a great phenomenal move by him. Yeah. We were 
we were talking where we noticed how like Jamie McMurray was like completely outperforming Larson all day. And it was kind of a shocker. And we started talking about like how maybe McMurray wasn't living up to the expectations at, at Chip Ganassi and maybe Larson fell into a slump and uh, Larson kind of proved us wrong there. I think uh, strategy played a little bit in there. Tires definitely helped. Uh, having, having fresh rubber on com- when it's colder is better than the the older tires when they're cold. So I, I think he had a little bit of advantage, but he had a he had a perfect restart. It's kind of like what, how Jimmy Johnson's won all all year this year. He hasn't had a dominated race, but he just kind of he's just there at the end. It's it's weird. Yeah, and you, I think your point about the tires is really good because you know we kept seeing all day that teams were taking two tires. There was no tires for Johnson late in the race. And Cole Pern at the end says, okay, well, tires just don't matter. Track position is the way to go. And like you pointed out, ultimately it probably did come down to tires because Larson just had that much of an advantage there to make that move. Yeah. And Cole Pern kind of took a bet on himself. You know, it's a late race gamble. And and he kind of got to the point where he was like, we're going to take track position over tires. And it was going to stay true if it stayed green. But he kind of bet on there not being another caution and especially not a, a red flag. And I think the red flag really, really hurt his chances at completing this win and getting some more playoff points. Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to talk about was Chip Ganassi slapping the crap out of Kyle Larson. Um, <laughs> so after the race, Chip Ganassi, they do that winner's interview thing um, on the front stretch. And Chip Ganassi comes up and he... He's like hugging Larson. He gives him a smooch on the cheek. And then he like smacks the side of his face pretty hard. Have you ever had a team owner or somebody like that smack you after one of your race wins? I've never been smacked in the face like that. But when I run a, when I won my first Canaan race in Roseville in 2015, I've never seen my, my crew chief run any faster than what he ever has. Um, he, he ran from the backstretch all the way. He was the first one there. He was there before the trophy people, flag man, everyone. And he got there and he just kind of started shaking me. I felt the whole car moving. And uh, it was a really incredible day. It was an emotional win for all of us. It was uh, after a really long season of being so close. I've never, I've been, I've been violently shaked, but I've never been slapped. So he, he was like leaning into the car and shaking yeah. you back and forth? Yeah, right through the window net. And he just, he just kind of shook me and What's funny is actually he didn't even know I won. He thought it was white flag when I crossed the line. And so like I slowed down. I, I knew I won. I, it was close. It was a it was a drag race to the finish line, but I knew I had it. And I turn around and he keys up. He's like, what are you doing? There's one more to go. And some actually my competition thought there was and I got hit. But it was uh, I, I, I had the deal sealed up and it was it was pretty emotional. It was it was a bunch of roller coasters for Jeff Jefferson up in the stands. And uh, he was the first one to me and he was definitely pretty emotional about it. Well, maybe the uh, the crew chief and engineer for Kyle Larson's team know what you mean about being violently shaken because Chip Ganassi looks like he got to them as well. I, I guess you you if you win and you're on Chip Ganassi's team, you got to watch out because Chip likes winners. Yeah, no kidding. I'd I'd prefer to be wrapped in bubble wrap if I'm up on the on the stand with Chip. Uh, just a good reminder to have in your back pocket if you're ever around him. So let's talk about some, some other things that happened during the race. Brad Kozlowski, based on his comments, he was saying that the Toyotas were sandbagging. They weren't bringing their best stuff. And then uh, it looked like they were going to win, and he wasn't. Now, ultimately, he ends up finishing even further back than they did. And Truex and Eric Jones, at least, from the Toyota camp, had really, really good runs. I was actually totally buying into Kozlowski's comments and 
Uh, I typically I play DraftKings, and I didn't even play this week because I'm like, I don't even know what to make of this. I don't know, know what's going on. So I guess Brad was wrong ultimately. I mean, what, what do you make of his comments now that we've seen the race? It's really hard because what he said sounded really reasonable. And if we watched through practice and qualifying, it looked like everything what he was saying was kind of lining up. But then we're looking at, you know, here on the last restart, and it's like top three Toyotas. And it's like, I, I'm just not sure how how we can go from Ford or Toyota, you know, sandbagging to them being top three and just kind of wiping up all the competition. I mean, you look at Eric Jones and he's having his one of his better career races so far in his cup series. Yeah. It said he tied his best uh, career finish with third today. So yeah. Yeah. So I look at that and it's like, you know, it's hard for me to say like, yeah, they're sandbagging, but you know, Eric Jones just finished third in the cup series. And it's like, well, if they're sandbagging, he just finished third, then the competition's in some trouble. Yeah. And the other Toyota that were that was up there, and we mentioned him briefly earlier, was Matt Kenseth. Crazy how that ends up turning out for him because I guess either he didn't get going or he was laying back for the push or whatever happened to him. Ultimately, he ends up, I guess, cutting a tire or got into the wall, and he finishes 24th. Now, instead of a 50-something point lead over Clint Boyer for the last playoff spot, he only has a 31-point lead going into the final three races, which are Bristol... Darlington and Richmond, that was a huge 20-point overtime for Matt Kenseth to slip up there and uh, it seemed when it seemed like he was going to have a really good day. Yeah, it was uh, well, what we like to say, major chase implications there. Um, I'm really surprised. You know, it's Kenseth was in a really hard spot, you know, with the 77 being in front of him. You can't help your competition win there. But he took a risk and he tried to go for the win. I mean, he made it four wide into turn one there. You know, ultimately he's moved in at work, but I don't think he would I don't think he would change what he did. I don't think he would have done anything differently if he could do it over again. Well, uh speaking of doing things differently, as I start to think back on other things that happened during the race, there was a moment earlier with Casey Kane where he cut up in front of Daniel Suarez. Uh, he was making a pass on Suarez and then all of a sudden he was just in front of him and they were wrecking. Um, that was really a confusing moment, and it looked like on from on Twitter that initially Casey Kane's spotter was wondering like, okay, maybe did I clear him too early? You know, Casey in his interview was like, oh, I thought we were going to run side by side down the backstretch, and I don't even know how we hit. Uh, what what was your interpretation of what happened in that Casey incident? I think there was just some sort of miscommunication in the five camp because everyone seemed pretty confused. Um, I mean, Kevin Hamlin. It's never good when your spotter's second-guessing himself. I would feel pretty uncomfortable with that. Uh, but Kevin Hamlin's an amazing racer or when he used to race, and he's a great spotter. And uh, I think it's just a bad deal where, you know, things are happening fast at 200 miles an hour, and you got to anticipate. You can't let someone hang on your rear, right rear corner panel like that and, you know, take the air off you and try to side draft you down the front or back stretch there. And I think he's just trying to get his driver back in line, and I think Casey was trying to get back in line. And, I think uh, things just went south real quick for the five team. Yeah. So there was a somewhat late debris caution, I think with about 15 to go or so. And up until that point, it looked like Truex was going to cruise to the win. There was tire pieces on the track. Um, you know, did you feel like that was worth the, the, the debris caution call? Cause I know they've been controversial at times. Yeah. I, th- I mean, what we saw on TV, there was definitely some tire debris on there, but it wasn't like, huge tire like I feel like you could have raced through it but like the way these guys are driving and passing and sucking up onto them on their left rear corner panel on the inside and they go to the bottom like almost to the white line 
it's like right in their race line or pass line, I guess. So to me, it's like, I think it was a good idea to throw it. And I think it created a way better race. It was kind of a snoozer, to be honest. And I mean, just lots of good clean racing, but it wasn't anything spectacular up until the last few restarts. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, personally, you know, it it was kind of a snoozer. It was like, oh gosh, what are we going to even talk about on this podcast for a while? And obviously there was, there was a really good finish. I'm not saying you needed the debris caution to set that up, but I think it was appropriate to call it there. Um, I know Truex seemed to seem to disagree on his in-car radio, but TV kind of zoomed in. And when you can see several pretty significant sized black pieces of rubber on the track or tire debris, you know, I, I think it's worth calling it there. I mean, I don't know why you would hold it and not call it, especially when you said, like you said, they're all over the place at Michigan. I mean, they were pretty, pretty much four wide for a second on that final restart. So how do you know that? Yeah, maybe, maybe it's not in the exact preferred racing groove, but you don't really know that. And if you're, if it really is about safety, I think that's worth, that's worth cleaning the track there. So I didn't really have a, a problem with that at all. You know, and it's funny that we talk about Larson and all the stuff it ends up winning the race earlier in the race. You know, both of us were kind of sitting here bagging on him a little bit because of the interactions he's had with Jimmy Johnson recently. And it seems like they've had somewhat of a little bit of a rivalry. And I guess Larson's crew was saying to him that Jimmy slowed him up in the pits on the first pit stop. NBC went back later and showed the replay. It didn't really seem like that's either of us. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. And when we were kind of talking about this, I kind of said how I feel like Kyle Larson's crew gets him more hyped up and more mad at Jimmy. It's like, their crew gets more mad at the 48 than Kyle got mad at the 48. I think over time, over this year, it's gotten where I think Kyle's taking everything that 48 does now personally. But I think it's just hard racing. I mean, Jimmy's one of the most respected guys in the garage, not just because of his accomplishments on and off the track, but but because of how good and clean of a race car driver he is. So I, I think the 42 crew chief may, might need to take a little bit of a chill pill, but he's doing some great things on those race cars and uh, and, and obviously it's paying off. I mean, he's got as many wins as the 48, so you can't beg on him too much, but I think uh, it's just racing and you got there's, there's a lot of give and take and sometimes you got to take and then you give a little bit later. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think you were, you were saying that if you're in the car and you're racing, you might have some incident that you as a driver don't think much of at the moment, but if you get incited by your crew chief, then that becomes your point of view because you don't really know. You can't see the whole picture. So you're just taking what your crew chief tells you as gospel. And you know, that that's what really drives you inside the car. Yeah. Like let's say I have a restart in a K&N race and I get ran over. I I go up and I'm like, what just happened there? I'm asking for reassurance. And if my spotter crew chief says 18, just ran us over. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to have an issue with 18 for a little bit till I get, till I feel like we're even. So, you know, I feel like, Sometimes a driver is not 100% sure what's going on out there. Um, you know, there's some incidents where it could go either way. And obviously your team's probably going to side with you, which they should. You know, they should. your team should always have your back. It's, it's interesting you said on the late restart where they went back, NBC went back much later and showed the final restart with Kenseth getting into the wall and then all those guys stacking up and almost being a huge wreck. And I think Dale Jr. was in, in the middle of a pack and Denny... And all these people, and you and you said, you know, this is what you really don't get from watching on TV, where, uh, you know, because you're only seeing the, the leader get away, and that's it. You know, if you were in person watching the race, that's the kind of thing you might pick up on. Yeah, and like to give another example, like I was when I raced Bristol last year in K and N, 
I got a I got the honor of watching the Xfinity race. I went up in the stands and like right before my race, I was just sitting in my suit, me and my buddy Noah, he my teammate Noah at the time, and we watched the Xfinity race. And it was weird because the Twitter reactions, everyone's saying this is the most boring race ever. I, this is dumb. I hate cup drivers in Xfinity. I'm sitting here. I'm watching Kyle Larson and Kyle Busch, two of the most raw, talented drivers out there in this in in racing right now, going head to head, splitting lap traffic every single lap. And it was so cool. They they lapped up to like 12th, and it was the coolest race I probably watched in my life, like in person. And everyone on who was watching at home was saying how boring it was. And I'm like, what are they missing? How how were how are they not getting this experience? I, I just wonder where the disconnect really is there. It's it's kind of sad to see. Now, one thing when we we're talking about Jimmy and Larson, I guess we have to um, have somewhat of a qualifier is that you grew up as a Jimmy fan, so you may be naturally taking Jimmy's side. But what do you think of of Jimmy so far this year? Um, it's interesting. You you said you became a fan of his pretty much right before his first championship, and you've been along for the ride. You've gotten to watch him, but he's not doing the same things that he was when he was winning those championships. How do, what do you make of his season? What do you make of his championship chances? Yeah, uh, you're definitely right. I'm, I'm hundred percent 48 biased. Um, he's, he's my driver for sure, but it's kind of weird. It's, it's not the usual dominance when he won those five championships in a row. You know, it's, it's kind of like he had the presence of like what the 78 does now. And uh, when they showed up to the track, it was kind of like when he tuned on and you, he's, he's qualifying on the pole, he's top of the charts in practice. He's, best 10 lap averages everything and he's winning all these races and now it's like these races are falling into his lap um you look at even last year at homestead like he's consistent he's always one of the most consistent racers but i mean he was the third best guy at the end of the season uh and then edwards and logano and and all of a sudden now now uh we got jimmy johnson sitting outside pole or out, outside of the front row with kyle larson schools larson on the restart and runs away with a championship so it's like that's kind of been the story. It's like things are like he's everyone has always said he's got a golden horseshoe somewhere, mm-hmm. but it's kind of really showing like he's talented by far. I think he's one of the best racers to ever race, but it's like it's not the same dominance and he's kind of lucking into some of these wins. Yeah, I, I think that's the case, um, especially with uh, Hendrick as a whole seeming off compared to the Toyotas. I mean, you know, the Chevys that have been the best this year have really been the Ganassi cars. I feel like more than the Hendrick cars, but I was totally ready to write Kyle Larson off, especially on the the slump, the little mini slump that he had had recently. But today, you know, because the last few races too had been Truex versus Kyle Busch. And as early in the season, it had been Truex versus Kyle Larson. Now it's back to Truex versus Kyle Larson again for the win. Truex is the common denominator and a Kyle is the common denominator, but the Kyle just keeps switching. At this point, out of those three, let's if we had to narrow it down to those three, because they've been the best three overall for the season, who would you think is your championship favorite? Uh, I definitely got to go with the 78. I mean, with all those playoff points, he's almost almost secured it. I feels like he's secured himself into the into Miami already. So I, I really think 78 is the one to beat. Uh, I'd love to see someone contend. 42 is going to be really good. If Larson gets into Homestead, I think he's going to be the one to beat. But uh, getting there is the big problem, I think, for him. So uh, we'll see how that goes. I'd love to see an upset winner. I think that would be super fun. But the Truex family and, and the 78 team as a whole has been wanting a championship, and they've been working their asses off for one for a long time. And I, I really think uh, they deserve one here soon. And if if not this year, it's got to be soon. 
Yeah, I mean, you'd have to say at this point, Truex deserves it, certainly. I mean, it's sort of like Harvick a few years ago, I think, really. It's, uh, you know, he's just rolling off the, the truck the fastest every week. And, you know, it just seems like they're the ones to beat. But it's not always the fastest one, especially when the playoffs come, that that wins. And, you know, I think we saw it last year, like you said, with Jimmy, he wasn't the fastest all year. So that's, that's just life under this new system. So overall... Grayson, um, what did you think uh, of this race? Because it, it, like you said, it was a snoozer for a while. We were sitting here talking about other things, talking about racing in general in the first and second stage. When I do my, was it a good race poll tomorrow? What do you think uh, the percentage of people are going to say? Yes. I think it's going to be uh 55, 45 uh, in favor of a good race. I think the maybe, maybe 60, 40. I think uh, the ending was good enough to save it. But I mean, it wasn't a bad race. You know, it wasn't they weren't all strung out. It helps to have good announcers. NBC's been killing it with this, and uh, I, I just don't, I just don't see it as a great race by any means. But it wasn't, it wasn't horrible. You know, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, There's a lot of good entertainment that NBC does here, and I think, uh, I think it'll be around the sixty forty range. Yeah, I, oh man, I think Larson probably made it go up probably fifteen percentage points if where if Truex had won. I think people would have bagged on it and said, oh, gosh, here we go again with Truex because they're sort of getting tired of his dominance, I feel like, and the fact that he's a Toyota, they don't seem to like that, and that would have affected their perception of the race. But the fact that it was a good ending and or exciting ending at least, um, I think people are going to go maybe 65-35. So almost, I almost land um, where you are, but uh, slightly different. So as we sit here um, doing this interview, I'm not exactly sure where Kevin Harvick finished today in relation to Dale Jr. I think Dale Jr. was somewhere in the teens, but they were linked this week because of these comments that Kevin Harvick made about how Dale Jr. stunted the growth of NASCAR by not being more of a regular winner, not winning championships like drivers do and or uh, athletes do in other sports. Personally, my my take real quick before I ask Grayson his take, um, I thought Harvick was too harsh. I thought he was off base. He, I think, was taking revenge for Dale Jr.'s comments about the salary stuff uh, with, with drivers at Watkins Glen, and he decided to take some sort of shot at Dale Jr. in response to that and throw Dale Jr. under under the bus. But I think he did it too much where, you know, maybe he could have had a point that, Dale Jr. could have helped the sport more by winning, but I don't think it stunted the growth by any means. Grayson, what is what is your take? I'm pretty pretty close with you, but I also can see where Harvick's coming from a little bit. I definitely agree. I feel like he he was taking kind of a revenge shot at at Jr. there, um, but I don't. I think stunted is the wrong word. I just think it's always great when your most popular driver succeeds. You know, it's a it's just a feel good story. And whenever Junior wins, if it's a Daytona 500 or anything, it's a good week in the NASCAR world. And so I, I would love to see where NASCAR would be today if, if he had two or three championships. I don't think it would affect the sport as a whole, but I think uh, Junior would have a lot more fans. And I mean, maybe that's maybe that's two, three hundred more people that go to a race. But I don't think it dramatically stunted anything like what Harvick says. But I definitely think there's a cap that could have gone higher if. If Junior was uh was was a regular winner in the series, but 
I think NASCAR as a whole and fans and and uh, Junior Nation kind of puts a puts Junior on too high of a pedestal. You know, he doesn't. He's just one of the coolest guys in the garage, and he's going through a lot, especially this year with his health and. And you just got to take expectations off, you know. I mean, every year it's like this is Junior's year. You hear it almost every year. And it's hard as a driver to not live up to expectations. And, and Junior didn't ask for any of those. And I think his fans really put that on him. So let's talk about your life uh, here in Oregon because I'm sure people are interested about uh, a race car driver from Oregon. I know it's a little bit unusual for me based on the people that I've seen around the Portland area. Uh, you don't see too many people that are into racing much, at least that I come across on a daily basis. So you grew up here in the Portland area. This is a suburb. Um, we're about, I guess, probably 20 minutes from downtown Portland or something like that. Tell us about your life growing up racing and how you got to this point. Well, I started out racing at Alpenrose Dairy. Um, I'm not sure how far they distribute, but you've probably seen their dairy products. And uh, they have a little quarter midget track out there and that's where I started racing when I was five and a half-ish. Just on the farm with all the cows? They have a quarter midget track? Uh, it's kind of it's kind of separated, but they have like a, they actually have a really gorgeous prop, piece of property where they have it's like three baseball fields. I don't know if you know what a velodrome is. Is that for biking? Yeah. It's, a, it's like Daytona-type banking for biking. It's insane. But they have a velodrome, an old town where they still serve the ice cream on, uh, on Sundays. It's awesome. It's like... A dollar for the biggest scoop you'll ever get in your life um but it's it's a really cool uh dairy farm and uh i mean it's not right next to the cows you actually don't see them at all but uh, can you smell the cows oh yeah you can use you can smell them here and there but uh it's really beautiful area they actually have a world series baseball field out there uh for little leagues and it's so uh, that's pretty cool but i i believe it or not i was actually at my cousin's baseball game i was a big fan of racing i grew up as a big alancer junior fan and uh, he, he little Al was my dude, so uh, I was already into racing a little bit in the NASCAR, and we went to a baseball game for my cousin, and right across the way was a quarter midget track, and I wandered off over there, and parents found me, and it kind of took off from there. I never took racing was always a passion of mine, but I didn't think it was going to be reality. You know, I always said I'm going to be a NASCAR driver one day, but I never really like knew the steps to do that. I was, I'm a first generation racer. My parents didn't know the steps of it. We're all learning still today about how to, how to get better as a racing family. So my brother's had a little bit easier. We've, we've kind of, I've kind of paved the road a little bit for him there, but it's kind of took off. I, I stopped racing quarter midgets when I was 14, did like a four cylinder late model deal out here, just race locally. And all of a sudden, uh, Jeff Jefferson out of Jefferson pits racing, he kind of noticed me a little bit and we went out and tested a late model with him and the rest was kind of history. We started racing for him the next couple of years and really took off from there. That's awesome. So um, when you tell people like, you know, your neighbors or friends uh, about racing, have you uh, been able to convert anybody to race fans out here? I haven't really converted anybody. I mean, either you like racing out here, like you're a big fanatic or you don't really like it. There's not a lot of casual race fans. One of my neighbors, uh, the ones over here hate it, but the guy over here, and whenever he sees my car loading up, he's like, you better not start that thing up without me around. And <laughs> he loves it. Like he's, he wants me to do burnouts in the street and he, he's all in on the racing deal. But uh, not everyone is uh, taken to it as much as what we have. And that's all right. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But pe- people at my school didn't really appreciate it. Kind of got made fun of for racing cars a little bit, which is kind of hard to believe now that I look back on it. But uh, I love it. It's it's so so cool. And 
racing soap here, I feel like out here on the West Coast, I mean, some of the best racers in the world, most of the best come from the West. So I feel like it, if it, it's cool to be racing with historic tracks and historic drivers out here. It's pretty crazy how NASCAR, for all its image of being a Southern sport, is, you know, the look, I mean, Kyle Larson, California, Jeff Gordon, California, Kevin Harvick, California, Jimmy Johnson, California. Um, you had Greg Biffle, Casey Kane. There's so many, uh, Kyle Busch, uh, Kurt Busch um, from Las Vegas. I mean, you have so many people who are really big in NASCAR or have been over the last decade or so from the West Coast or, you know, out, out West. And I don't think that people really seem to appreciate how good the talent is out here you know yeah i mean it's it's easy for people to say that you know when you get someone like uh your Preston peltier of your late models and uh he wins he wins he kicks everyone's ass at hickory motor speedway um you know but he, he's he's always a solid contender then he comes out here and gets on a hot streak and starts whipping on everyone on the west coast and it's it's hard for people for east coasters to admit that the west is has great talent um, when honestly, I just feel like we're behind on, on technology and equipment. I think, uh, racers are just, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I, I have a harder time racing around guys out here than I do back East. And of course people are going to point to my Canaan East stats and say, well, Grayson, you never got a top five in Canaan East. Well, different circumstances that there is some things that played in there. And I, I just, you know, you can talk to Brandon McReynolds about this sort of deal when he came out here and. It's kind of funny. His only two K&N wins came at Iowa when the East and West were together. So I think it just kind of goes to show how, how tough competition can be out here. So you feel like maybe like at the K&N level, the cars and the equipment is better out East, but the driver talent might be better out, out here. Is that fair to say? Yeah, kind of. I want to say maybe equipment. I think, yeah, I think guys like Jefferson Pitts have phenomenal equipment, but it's like the information and knowledge, like, uh, when Todd Gillen started racing out here, he had a uh, KBM chassis and technology and, you know, and they have that alliance with Bill McAnally racing with David Gillen racing. And now it's like, all right, well, now they have a complete different status quo going on over here at BMR, almost an East team. It feels like I think their just information was on a whole nother level. And we had a, especially I seen it in just Jefferson Pitts racing where they had to work their butts off to figure out what they were doing. And I think it's finally starting to come around. It's taken about a year and a half or a year or so to really catch up, I feels like. But, you know, it goes in waves. You know, it's sometimes the team's just thriving and sometimes the team's struggling and all of a sudden now, two years later, it's reversed. So it's kind of different, but, you know, it it just kind of comes in waves on who's got what information and who knows, you know, it's all about what you know. Speaking of what you know and what you don't know, if people really did want to know more, about racing out here and you could convert some people and I could convert some people that are your age, 20 years old or teenagers or whatever, or anybody that wants to learn about cars, I would recommend Grayson that they go to Sam tech. There's my sponsor plug. <laughs> I would recommend they go to samtech.edu because that is a, the school of automotive machinists and technology. And you could learn how to work on engines, engine cylinder heads, all that stuff and learn how to make cars go faster and you could end up working on a high performance race team. If you weren't, if you didn't have the driving talent that you did, you, you can go the driving route. Other people might need to go the mechanical route. So I would send them to samtech.edu. Did I do a good sponsor plug from your driver perspective? Yeah, you sold me on it. I think I'm going to have to go there. I need to learn a few more things about mechanical stuff. So I'll, I'll have to check it out now. 
okay, well, that would mean that you would ship out of Portland, Oregon to Houston, Texas. It's down in Houston. Uh, I do like Houston, but I really love Portland. And do you, you like it up here? You've liked living in the Pacific Northwest? I've I've grown to love it. Yeah, I've, I was convinced for a long time I was going to move to Charlotte, East Coast. But, you know, it's it's hard here. You get these amazing summers and it kind of makes up for all the gray and rain and stuff you get over the winter and fall. But it's too beautiful out here. I, I love it. It's just it's just a always a fresh breath of air when you step out, not too humid. And it's just gorgeous out here on the West Coast. Yeah, well, I, I haven't done the winter yet, but hopefully soon. So, Grayson, this was fun. Uh, we spent like four hours together here watching the race and now doing the podcast. Let's finish this off by coming up with a hashtag where people can tweet you and I and discuss what they heard in the podcast today. Do you have any uh, suggestions at all for the hashtag? I don't know. You were talking about the cookies earlier and you seemed pretty impressed. So I I don't know. I think something cookie related. That was pretty solid. Yeah. The, I'm telling you guys, I wish I could describe how good these cookies were that Grayson's mom made. They were not only she had the chocolate chip variety, but she also had M&M variety. Um, Kyle Busch didn't end up winning today. That would have been fitting yeah. since there was M&M cookies. But uh, I've had a lot of sweets here in Portland, but those actually homemade cookies rank among the best. So um, perhaps we could do hashtag mom's cookies. Do you think that's a good hashtag? I think that's perfect. Fits, fits great. Okay. Well, Grayson, thanks so much for joining us. And where can people uh, follow you on, on your social media accounts? Just at Grayson Raz. That's G-R-A-C-I-N because people always get me screwed up. They always spell my name wrong when I tell them to go follow me. But just follow me. It's all the same. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Find me, whatever. You can friend me on my personal page. I accept just about everyone. So I love communicating with people. Just, you know, give me a shout. And your next race, you said, uh, coming up this week? Yeah, August, August 19th. I forget what date we're on here. It all runs together. Well, thanks again. And for everybody else listening, we appreciate your time. And we'll talk to you next time on the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. <laughs>